How is the gospel foolishness? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truth of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, we have a fun discussion today. The gospel is not foolishness, you sinner. It's only—well, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's true. Mm. But this is an this is a discussion that that shows up in Scripture. So while yes, I yes I may be a sinner, I'm also redeemed by the gospel. <laughs> yes. So, you know. but there's no maybe about it. You are. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, quali- we, we like to qualify may things. Be there's a space, not maybe, but <laughs> may be. <laughs> we we love to qualify as much as we can. This one needs no qualification. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, uh, so today we are uh, we are jumping forward in the Bible once again. We are in the epistles. We are looking at First Corinthians chapter one verses ten through twenty one, and actually doing a little bit of a backtrack and, yeah. and talking about a little something from John's gospel as well. We are both zigging and zagging at once in this one. I know. How oh, does this mean that we're just kind of like spinning in a circle? I guess so, because, I mean, they cancel <laughs> each other out, right? That's, I think so. Um, you know, it's we're going to get dizzy if we're not careful with all this <laughs> yeah. zigzagging that we're doing. So anyway, how about you set a little bit of context for these two passages? All right, let me do that. Uh, let me talk about 1 Corinthians first, and then mm-hmm. something brief about John 17. So 1 Corinthians, uh, this is where Paul has heard a report from somebody named Chloe, a woman, that the church in Corinth, which he was part of, getting going, of course, was dealing with several serious issues, including some serious sins, some, some really serious ones when you read the book. Um, yeah. And so what, what Paul does, of course, he has a heart for this church. He has a heart for all believers. And so he writes the epistle of 1 Corinthians, this letter to send to them to address what he has heard, to address these concerns. And as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will just see that's kind of the formula. He will... After his introduction, he's like, okay, now here's the first concern. Let me deal with it. Okay, here's the next thing. Here's the next thing and so on. And of this series of concerns, the very first thing he deals with is division in the church, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is denial of the resurrection. So it seems that he has bookended the two most serious, and again, many serious things they're dealing with, but oh, yes. one could argue the two most serious threats to that church he bookended. Let me talk about it first, and let me talk about the other one last. Of course, ending in the resurrection, the most serious. Um, instead of dealing with that one first, determine the middle, he probably wanted that one just sticking with the listener um, or the reader, as, as, as the case may be. Wants that resonating as they finish up. And so he saves that one for last. But out of the gate, he's going to deal with this issue of division that we're going to look a little bit more into today. And then if you think about John 17, this is, of course, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Just literally hours before, Jesus will be arrested and then crucified. And so he's taking John 17 and he's praying. He starts for himself, just a few verses, and then he prays for his followers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he prays for, which is why this passage is being dovetailed with the first Corinthians, he prays for unity that it is a big focus of his prayer, that he, he, he is praying that his followers are united, and we're going to see the, the depth 
that he is praying for us to be united. So this issue of being united kind of fuses these together. And along the way, as we read about that, as you've mentioned in 1 Corinthians, we're going to come across something about foolishness and wisdom. All right, so let's uh, let's kick this off the way that we typically do when we have passages that are short enough to read. Uh, let's actually read these two. So we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we'll continue on with those three verses in John 17. So, uh, starting in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or another, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that not no one can say you were baptized in my name. In fact, uh, I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, there's our answer to the the question right up at the top. Um, But it is the power of God who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. And then John 17. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Just reading those is really convicting because, you know, you talked about, as you were setting the context, you talked about about there being some pretty serious sins that were, and serious issues and serious points of division within the Corinthian church. And, I mean, it doesn't take much of a, of a more than a, a passing glance at this, the landscape of the Western church and especially the North American church to see we need this. Yeah. We need this message as much as they did in this day. And, and, and how serious it is. I think the temptation is to kind of dismiss this. Well, it's okay if we can't be united. Um, and I think it's part of the North American, especially individualism that, that we wrestle with. Um, that it's, it's icing on the cake if we even experience some kind of unity with just a few others. When, when Christ is broadening this and we see how important this is to, to the church in Corinth. 
Um, before we jump in and continue some heavy stuff, and, and this is something anybody, uh, our longer term listeners will probably already know where we're going to go with this, that we, we are prone to talk about how we are experiencing division in the church today. And I think mm-hmm. anybody who's listened for a season of time pretty much is going to read our minds and, okay, where are we going with this? Yeah. And so there, there's some um, challenging topics that we have to explore. Mm-hmm. But just a little bit of levity before we get there. I, I love verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 1. I love how Paul is kind of, you can, it's one of those times I can almost see him as he's writing this. And he's like, okay, I only baptize these two guys. Wait, wait like, a oh, wait, maybe I baptize wait, wait, That's not right. Yeah. I think I'm forgetting somebody. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> this. And then he adds that caveat. And I don't remember anybody else, so <laughs> I don't want to yeah. lie to you. It, but you can almost, it's almost that you can see him <laughs> thinking, wait a minute, that's not right. There's somebody else I forgot about. So I just, I just love, that's one of those verses that always make me smile when I come across it. Yeah. All right. So yeah, let's, let, let's move in. Let's talk about some of the uh, questions that, that should arise. And, and I'll go first with mm-hmm. the first one. And it, it's all the way back in, in verse 10 of First Corinthians 1. What is the same understanding and same conviction that Paul says should unite us? And I think, again, most of us probably already know, okay, he's talking about the gospel, but I just wanted to be clear about that so we don't move on and, and move past it. That yes, uh, he is talking about the gospel should be our source of understanding and conviction and unity by extension. Um, Paul, as he's getting into this, we jumped into the middle of, of a section here. Um, the verses that precede this, verses 4 through 9, right after his brief introduction, he's really focusing on the work of Christ, what Christ has accomplished. So that's fresh in the reader's mind moving into this. So it probably would be easy for them to draw back when he's talking about the same conviction and, and, and same understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an, Again, it's understanding of who Christ is, what he's done and the conviction that he alone saves. So no matter what other issues we might not agree on, and there are many issues we can disagree about, and we find reasons to disagree about other things, that's okay. If we, if we agree on the, on the gospel, if we understand and we have the same conviction about the gospel, that it is true, it alone saves, then that is sufficient to cement, to cement our unity as, as the people of Christ. Yeah, and we can't underemphasize the importance of, of what you just said there. And, and, and this really goes back to, I think, our understanding of, of really what the, what the place of the gospel is in the Christian life too, right? That, yeah. um, I mean, it's so easy to, to neglect this and, for, and, and not really consider how the gospel is intended to unite us or how it does unite us cements us together, weds us together, all of these, any, any way that you want to describe it. If the gospel is just the beginning of the Christian life, as opposed to the center of it um, or the totality of it. Or an an addition. Yeah. If it's an add on a bonus, a whatever, of course it can't unite us unless it is the heart of what we believe. Yeah. If I'm anything this is a matter of identity. If, if I realize my identity is anything else apart from Christ, then uni- unity can fracture. So if I see myself, first of all, as a, a, an American, for example, I am setting myself up for a fracture when I have a disagreement with somebody from another nation or my Repu- or political party, Republican, Democrat, mm-hmm. independent, whatever. 
that again, if you identify yourself primarily as that, you're you're setting yourself up for disunity when you have a believer even who has a different political view. So never, I mean, yeah. you, what I do for a living, my my marital status, all can be good things. But if if you are tethering your identity to any of those, and those are paramount, and the gospel is secondary or beyond from that, mm-hmm. then this is why disunity flourishes. But when we see ourselves as gospel people, that's primarily who we are. I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ who happens to be an American of certain political party of whatever. Yeah. Then unity, unity can stand. Now, another question that they, these passages raises, what did the, what did the church mean when they said that they belong to specific individuals. So in verse 12, we saw Paul rattle off all of these examples of, you know, I belong to Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And of course the uber spiritual of all, well, I belong to Christ. Um, You can, you can just kind of hear the little like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) in in, that's uh, that's there. Cause we've all heard that from people in, uh, in real time at one point or another, or said it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, what's going on here is is that that this church seemed to be r- r- factioning around different leaders. And so instead of being uh, one church united by the gospel that was given to them by all of these teachers... They were they were saying, well, this one, like really, you know, they're basically doing the the Paul versus Jesus versus Peter versus John thing that um, we still see today, and that is and that's just not cool. And so, especially when it's like you're trying to say all of these people, who I mean, the only one you can say is is best, but is Jesus, but not in the way that they were trying to do it this idea of of competing with one another because even Jesus was like no, no no like you're missing the point if you're saying if you're saying if you're trying to faction and divide about me within within my body <laughs> it doesn't work that way so rather than seeing okay well trying to decide okay well which part which leader is best which party do I want to belong to you know we we do this as denominations and networks and and specific local churches and leaders within a local church or within a Christian community, different theological tribes, different sub-tribes within those tribes. It gets to some pretty dark places um, because inevitably what starts to happen when you start factioning is you inevitably start demonizing those that you are opposing. And so yeah. what that means is, is to treat them as an enemy. And the problem there is, is that that flies against scripture. Yes. Entirely. Um, so for example, in first uh, Peter chapter three, verse 13 through 17, one of the things that we see there is we see in the context of persecution and suffering, um, we see, we see Paul uh, Peter talking about, how Christians are supposed to respond to this. And um, let me just uh, let me just grab this real quick for us because a it, bonus reading. I like that's it. right. 
But li- but listen to this. Um, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready uh, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that, if, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yeah. And so this is really important because, I mean, although contextually, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about... Um, those outside the church persecuting the church in this passage. Here we're taught here in our conversation about first Corinthians, we're talking about factioning within the church, but the principle that's in this passage still applies because if you begin to slander and revile those who are, who you disagree with because you're not keeping the gospel central, even in the name of keeping the gospel central, what 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 is happening here? Are you honoring Christ in that? Can you claim to be suffering for Christ in that? And and that's something that that regardless of whatever kind of um, whatever side of any kind of divisive issue that we find ourselves on, we have to be asking ourselves that: How are we treating those we disagree with? Not how are they treating us. How are we treating them? Start yeah. there. And I think this is, um, I'm 48. I, I grew up going to church um, since I was, I mean, ever since I can remember. So I, I've been around enough. I'm sure somebody older could look and say, well, I've, I've got more experience on you. I can give you a different perspective. But this, this is just to say, I'm not new at this. Mm-hmm. And with that said, it seems like things are getting worse in terms of division it seems like the church is finding more and more ways to divide as you're describing. And I wonder, is it, is it really social media? Is it, I know you and I like to, to blame it a lot mm-hmm. and I think it deserves a lot of the blame, but if you think about it, so before social media, your community really was in person, of course, and in mm-hmm. your local church was usually where you encountered the most believers. You might have some others at work or whatever, but really the ones where you noodle on doctrine and theology and life are from your local church. And those are your people, right? And mm-hmm. so in that context, you would learn to disagree about secondary and tertiary issues and yeah. get along and preserve unity. But now it seems like you can find digital community, which has some value to it, of course. Mm-hmm. But now not only do I am, am I in community with people in my local church, but now I find tribes online, for example, and I can, I can develop some kind of community and identity with these other, and then you can start being more discerning and you can start establishing the boundaries of who's in and who's out a lot more detailed than before. Mm -hmm. So it seems like what this has, is doing is it just pouring gasoline on the heart, you know, the fire of our heart, the wrong fire. And in terms of us um, finding reasons to uh, to have that spiritual haughtiness of we have the best understanding of all of God's truth, and if you don't align with what I believe, there's something wrong with you. Um, you know, you're, you're an issue. 
you're, you're either foolish or you're a harm to the church. How often do we hear that today? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we find reasons to divide. And I'm wondering, is this a big part of it? Yeah. Well, we'll get back to well, um, unless you wanted to jump in. No, no, I think that I, I do think that's that that is really important, and some of that comes down to um, there's a couple of things that can be can be at, at the cause uh, or at the heart of some of the the ways that we approach we approach specific issues. So in some cases, um, we can become a little over exuberant. Um, and again, I'm trying to keep it as, as in, as personal focused as possible. So, um, whether it's a, uh, whether it's coming to an understanding of a particular social issue or it's, um, or it's, you know, really grasping a, a theological concept really deeply for the first time. Um, there is a, there's a stage in all of those things that, that, um, has been dubbed the cage stage. And so what that is, is basically is it's um, where you have some knowledge, but you don't have enough understanding or maturity to, to accompany it or humility for that matter yeah. to accompany the, that, that acquired knowledge. Um, so you know something, but you, haven't ex- but you haven't fully lived it and you don't fully grasp it. And so when you communicate, you tend to get a little bit jabby. Um, you know, I know certainly I, I have had many moments like that, um, particularly as a newer believer developing distinct theological convictions, um, and very clearly orthodox theological convictions, but they were just distinct from, um, actually where the church that I was, was a part of at the time. Um, and we were not, and we were not in agreement on those things. And there were a lot of times when I just did not handle that very maturely or responsibly or um delicately <laughs> and so ended up being kind of a jerk because of it um and that was not cool because that hurt people and so that is and and so that caused damage um but what i also realized at a certain point was that as i started to slowly get a little bit of maturity, just a little bit (laughs) was we, in some of those things that it was like, okay, this isn't actually, this is actually a, a distinctive thing that it's like, I can't, um, I can't in good conscience serve in this particular community because Mm. I just dis, I fundamentally disagree on teaching X that they hold to as a primary teaching issue. Um, that was not an, that was really a secondary issue, but anyway. <laughs> um, and so to avoid being divisive, that was when I chose to yeah. chose to leave the church and go to a different local church where I could align more doctrinally and sit under that teaching in a non-divisive, non, um, non-difficulty-making way. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good and important... Um point that you draw out there, Aaron, that when we speak of unity, it's that primary, it's the gospel that is primary. Um, It's okay to be in different fellowships, for example, for secondary reasons, but we have to even do that in unity with one another. But we should divide 
if it's an, a gospel issue, as you're describing, yes. if your church is teaching a secondary issue as a primary and compromising the gospel or mm-hmm. making it confusing or adding to it or whatever, mm-hmm. then then this doctrine that we're talking about of unity should not be one that says, all right, we got to stay here and be united with these people who are in heresy or, you know, or just have a really different view of something that's important. Yeah. So we, we got to be careful about not taking this too far. The problem is, as most of us see, it's taken the other way. We we aren't fighting and worried about being too united. We're fighting and being too divided. Um, let's get back to the text, plow through. I'm sure we're going to have some other jumping off points, or else this is going to be a long episode. So I mean, these ones usually are, because yeah, we're are. talking about the Bible. So, But <laughs> let's, let's just get back to it. Let me, let's come up yes. to the next question. So the next one I see in verses 13 through 17 Mm-hmm. Um, back to what I kind of find humorous about this, Paul talking about baptism. Why does he focus on baptism in his response? He, he talks about it quite a bit, even that kind of double take of trying to figure out who he's baptized. Remember that. Mm-hmm. And when you read this, it, it makes sense that he appeals to nobody being crucified but Christ. You know, that's his first point. Wait, why are you so worried about saying, I'm of such and such, where they weren't crucified for you? Um, Christ alone, he's who we follow. So that makes total sense. Um, that because no one has, you know, was crucified, none of these leaders deserve our ultimate uh, allegiance. Christ yes. does. But then he talks about baptism, and it seems like he he diminishes or devalues baptism, it sounds like. So what's going on there? I think there are two potential reasons he brings baptism to bear. The first one is practical. And it's this, that baptism, we don't know. You kind of have to read between the lines and guess baptism may have played a role in the divisions in Corinth, Mm -hmm. which would make sense that people could be looking at who baptized them or who was responsible for them coming to saving faith. You know, maybe uh, Peter himself didn't baptize somebody, but but maybe they are a a great-grandchild of Peter spiritually, so to speak, that the person who shared the gospel with them came to Christ through Peter's ministry, and so that baptism kind of was applied to Peter. And it would make total sense then that Paul would say, wait a minute, it doesn't matter who baptizes. Um, you know, it, it's we're baptized in the name of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's the theological. So there could be a practical reason, but then the theological reason could be there as well. Um, is Paul here driving toward a remembrance of what baptism is about? Because baptism, as we know, is a symbol of not only believers being joined with Christ, it's also a symbol of, of believers being joined together with the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Both of those are really important. And so we're baptized according to the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're not baptized in the name of the person doing the baptism. Mm -hmm. So Paul here, in in an interesting way, could be drawing this to bear as well to think, all right, guys, if you're arguing about who baptized you, you're not even understanding what baptism is all about, which is further evidence. You're off. There's something wrong with you. All these things should be joining you. The gospel message should be joining you. The cross should be joining you. Your baptism should be joining you. All these things should be uniting, pulling us together as one, not sources of division. It just makes no sense. So Paul here, you know, he will later say that, you know, he doesn't have a ministry of baptism. He has a ministry of of the gospel. He is not suggesting that baptism is bad. Um, He is just keeping that primary, I'm here to preach the gospel. It's not about who physically baptizes. I think Paul's, this is Paul's way of saying, it's okay if somebody else does the physical baptism mm-hmm. of people who I share the gospel with. 
I'm not worried about that. Yeah. It's important. We need to do that. But it's not about, okay, I need to get my hands on that person, get them in the water and so forth. Yeah, it um, doesn't count unless I do it. Exactly. So I, I, we have to read this carefully. This is in no way of Paul diminishing, devaluing baptism, although it seems like he might be if you just kind of read this in isolation. I think it is more of that idea of this practical, he's trying to downplay um, too much importance that the church is putting wrongly on baptism, mm -hmm. how it was done, not the meaning of it, but how it was done. And so he's trying to kind of push that down. And at the same time, I think he might be trying to read between the lines, say, guys, remember what baptism's about. It should, it should join us together. The next thing that, uh, that we need to talk about really is the, the question that we started with today, which is, you know, how is the gospel at once f wisdom and foolishness? How can the gospel be foolish? Well, again, it, it comes down to a per the to a matter of perspective and the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. So the perspective comes in with the world. So the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, as the text says, and as we mentioned up front. Um, the world sees the gospel as foolishness, that God would come into the world as a human being, that he would die on a cross at all, let alone to forgive sin. The whole, the whole concept of the gospel seems absolutely ridiculous, especially to the philosophers of the day. And I mean, we see that, and that, that, I, that belief has carried through yeah. to today as well. People think the gospel is ridiculous if they don't believe it. And unless the Holy Spirit acts in them, they will keep thinking it is ridiculous until they don't. And um, and that is, and that's really important for us to remember because you can't reason someone into the kingdom of God. Um, you can't, you cannot create a compelling enough, logically consistent enough argument for why the gospel is true and why it really happened, despite all the evidence that exists that it is true and did happen, it's not going to be enough to do it on its own. That's why you need the Spirit. And because of the Spirit's work, because we have seen that the gospel is true, because of what the, the Holy Spirit has done in us and to us and through us, um, we can see the gospel as wisdom, as beautiful. Um, we recognize that sin has sin's very existence in our lives has created an unsolvable problem, something that we cannot address on our own. There is no way to be good enough on our own when the standard is to look at God. You know, horizontally, I can be better than you all day long, Brian, and you can be better than me all day long. Um, you know, in our own minds, at least. It's easy to be better than me. Well, same. But, you know, because we're both terrible people. But, yes, we are. Um, <laughs> I don't think our wives would agree with that. But um, they, they seem to like us. And our kids like us, too. But, um, <laughs> but, um but I mean, when you when you when you take it off of the horizontal plane, when you take the issue off of off of that, off of the comparing to our neighbors um, viewpoint, 
and we say, okay, this is the standard that God looks at, that God is, is comparing us to himself, that his standards of perfection, of holiness, of, of beauty, of wonder, basically we're in a lot of trouble if we think, and we're deluded if we think that we can address this on our own without him intervening. Yeah. And so the gospel is a brilliant solution to what from a human perspective is an unsolvable situation because it solves the problem because God himself comes into the world as the man, Jesus Christ. And he lives perfectly for us and he dies for us so that we can live through him. Definitely. All right, let's continue on. Let's look at John 17 now. And mm -hmm. there's three questions I see on this. They're pretty brief, though. So let me kind of address those three. And, and unless you have any other comments, that'll wrap up our time of questions. And you can bring us home with the guidance that, that this makes. Um, but when I look at John 17, I, I, again, I see three core questions here. The first one is, um, who did Jesus have in mind for this prayer? We see it in verse 20. Again, this is another question where I think somebody reading would see, all right, it's pretty obvious who he has in mind. He has all believers and all time, including us. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I wanted to address this question is just for that clarity, just to make sure that point was not lost. This is one of these beautiful truths in scripture to know that Christ, we know this intellectually, we know it theologically that Christ intercedes for us even now, but to see in John 17, where we read his words and see he prayed for us on the night of his arrest is incredibly encouraging because he's praying not just for his disciples, he says, but those who would believe through them. And by extension, that includes us. So man, take, in, take joy in knowing that we were on his mind and his heart that night of, of his betrayal and arrest leading into the crucifixion. The second question I see here is, does Jesus really expect a church to be united as the father and son are? Verse 21 and following. The answer to this one, yes, without a doubt. He would not mm -hmm. pray for something. He would not um, require something of us that is not potentially capable of happening. How does this happen then? Because we're talking about perfect unity. Well, it happens through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit producing fruit in us, in our lives, making it possible for us to be united. You know, mm -hmm. so as we as we let the Holy Spirit work in us and go to war against sin, sin is the fuel that drives so much division within the church. When that is lowered and eliminated, then unity rises up. So through the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel being in our minds, saturating our, our lives, our hearts, that should compel us to strive for unity, so forth. So yes, it, it's real. It's, it's really what he wants of us. And then third question is, why is this unity so important? And we see it again in verse 21 and following. And Jesus says, point blank, they need to be united so that people will believe the gospel that they proclaim. Mm -hmm. When we live with unity that defies the world's understanding, and this is, this is what is so heavy on my heart that we miss this so often, the world around us is fractured too. Yeah. And what they need to see is a church doing it right. They need to see a church that is very diverse, that has different nationalities and ethnicities and political perspectives and favorite soccer teams. You know, the list goes on and on. Yeah. They need to see us with all these differences 
but living together as one in love and, and unity so that the world can look at us and say, how are you guys doing that? And we're able to say, it's not us. It's the gospel that we believe. It's, it's the Holy Spirit in us that is producing this. And so therefore, they see what it's supposed to be. They see the kingdom as it's supposed to be experienced. And they desire to know more about that, and they would respond to the gospel. So this is why it's so important for us. This is why Christ prayed for that unity. Again, those final hours before his arrest and betrayal. Yeah. All right. So uh, thinking about this passage from a discipleship perspective, here's a little bit of guidance, or these two passages, rather. Here's a little bit of guidance that uh, that we would offer, and this really just kind of sums up a lot of what we've already talked about. Um, but first is that we should fight for the right source of gospel-centered unity. And so that means that we are to be yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and we can't be... Uh, and that we recognize that unity doesn't come from us just wanting it bad enough, um, and we can't force it. We have we have to submit to the Holy Spirit's power in that. That also means that we have to fight for the right mindset for gospel-centered unity. So it's not just for the source, but it's the mindset as well, um, that, we, that we truly do need to value it and that we do want to want it. As much as, as, much as our desire for it cannot just simply bring it about magically, um, we, we, do still, we do still desire it. So often we can, we can look toward others and what they need to do um, while there's a place for that. I mean, we need to, and we need to help one another grow in those areas. What we need to do first is, is much in the same way that throughout this conversation, we tried to point to examples of where we have failed to um, pursue this kind of unity, where we have been division, divisive, where... Um, we have seen this and have strived to not be a part of it. We have to start with what do we do? What are we responsible for? Um, that's, that's, there's so much in the scriptures that are talking about a, um, and I've been really convicted by this, that, you know, depending on the translation that you use a, a, um, a, a gentle and lowly, a gentle and quiet, a gentle and respectful demeanor. Um, and you see this in First Peter, and you see this in Jesus' description of himself in Matthew 11. Um, and these, these things go together because they, they, the language is the same. Um, that you are that our conduct has to be aligned to Jesus. And, and that's where and, and if we want and if, in so much as unity is a matter of our ability to do something, that's where we need to start. And so finally, that leads into naturally our behaviors. So we have to fight for the right behaviors for gospel-centered unity. And so our desires, um, our desires lead to our, our desires, our submission to the Holy Spirit lead to a um, spirit-empowered action. To pursue this. Um, and so we have to think about practically how do we how do we conduct ourselves in places that are naturally more divisive? So social media, the public square, when different kind of conversations pop up in, you know, in 
those virtual environments or in our real in our day-to-day environments as well about you know whether it's politics or other social issues or um, even your favorite favorite band or donut whatever yeah. the thing is is that you get a little bit hot under the collar about um, how does how do we act what is what is our what is our demeanor what are the words that we say how can we how can we say even when we disagree but i love you and the gospel is more important than our disagreement how can that be true for us and so those are the things that we need to pursue and that we need to fight for in the right kind of fighting um th- that all begins with submitting ourselves to the spirit and looking humbly first at how we are acting before pointing fingers at someone else. So, all right, Brian, we have talked about the, these passages and these, these issues for a really long time. So it's probably a good time for us to wrap this up. So uh, thanks for hanging out today. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. <laughs>